Hi, I'm Panicky in the UK. This is Panicky Pictures. Uh, my headphones are semi-broken, so I'm not going to make any promises about audio quality for this episode. But then again, when do I ever? Uh, <laughs> I hope it sounds okay. Uh, and I hope that you had a wonderful Halloween and a blessed Samhain if you celebrate one or both of those festivals. Um... I will, well, I'll get to what I did for Halloween slash Samhain, uh, and it's not that impressive, but I'm going to build up to it anyway, uh, you know, might as well try to create some kind of suspense. In this episode, much like the god Janus, I'm going to be looking both behind me and ahead of me. Um, I'm going to be going over what I watched for Boxtober, um, which is a fraction of what I intended to watch. And I'm also going to be talking about a new challenge that I'm setting myself in November. So stay tuned for that. Uh, Let's do Boxtober first. Um, I know quite a few people uh, did this challenge or some version of this. Not everybody would have done it as Boxtober, but I think that a lot of people have been watching horror films in the kind of build up to Halloween. Um, And you may remember in my last episode I went through my list, of course you can always go back and listen to that if you'd like, or you can find me uh, on Letterboxd, Uh, my handle is Panicky in the UK, Um, and you can see my list. You can even comment on it if you like, although um, it's over now, so I don't know why you would, but you know, I don't know you, I don't know your life. but anyway, let's uh, <laughs> let's get into what I managed uh, to watch. So I didn't actually get started um, until the 9th of October. I was watching various other things uh, in the meantime, mostly stuff that was expiring on Prime, and I will be talking a little bit later about uh, why, why that's uh, mostly what I watch. But also I watch Kicking and Screaming for my planned episode uh, at the beginning of the month, which you may remember I didn't end up doing. Um, so anyway, so on the 9th of October, I watched The Dead Zone and I enjoyed it. it I, I like Cronenberg. Well, I don't like Maps to the Stars. But uh, generally, I like Cronenberg. I haven't seen as much Cronenberg as I would like. And uh, for me, Stephen King adaptations can go either way. I mean, I find him very, very... Well, I'll be honest, I haven't actually read very much King. But in terms of adaptations of his work, I can find them incredibly variable. um, In terms of how effective they are and how kind of um, powerful the central metaphor is. The Dead Zone I did like. Um... I did find it a little bit strangely episodic. Apparently the screenwriter deliberately made it episodic and kind of thought of it as being like a triptych, I think I'm right in saying. To me it seems more like a quartet. I just don't know if the narrative really works as a film. Um, I know there was a TV adaptation, I can see that being a lot more effective. Um, And I also think the casting of Christopher Walken is kind of odd, just because I feel like this central character, John Smith, is supposed to be kind of an everyman at the beginning, and then gradually things get weirder around him. Whereas I think Christopher Walken's energy is just so strange anyway that he's slightly odd casting for a character of that type. But um, I still really like him. Um, I think, uh, oh god, I'm gonna get this wrong, Martin Sheen, right? Not Michael Sheen, the older one, Martin Sheen. Um, 
he's great in this movie. Um, it's really interesting to see him playing a presidential candidate when, of course, um, he would become famous for playing a uh, president on TV. Um, certainly that's my main association with him. Um, but here he's just uh, really got this kind of manic, coked up energy and I think he's great. Um, of course, you can go to my letterboxd and you can read my write-up in more detail. I get into all that stuff a little bit more. The following day, I decided to watch Cell. I thought it would be fun to watch two Stephen King adaptations back-to-back. Oh boy, Cell is uh, one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. Really impressively bad, like an absolute shambles, does not hang together whatsoever. Um, total nonsense. I don't even know what to say about it. It's, um, incomprehensible, deeply unsatisfying, um, things seem to happen at random, there's no real kind of cohesive, it, you don't ever find out really why things are happening, they just keep happening. I've kind of, uh, tried to make some sense of it over on Letterboxd again. Don't think I got very far, but, you know, you can always check that out if you'd like. Um, finally, not finally, <laughs> not finally. Oh my god, can you imagine if it had only been three? That would be terrible. Next, on the 13th, uh, speaking of which, um, we have a Friday the 13th coming up in a couple of weeks, which I thought was uh, kind of spooky um right after halloween and a blue moon and everything um i guess that's just the way this year is going um anyway uh on the 13th i think um probably i started this on the 12th and it went over into the 13th because i've got two films logged on the 13th um the white reindeer which is a 1952 um finnish film uh it's a kind of shapeshifter slash vampire fable. It's based on pre-Christian mythology um, of Lapland. It's um, woman-centric. It's totally fascinating. Um, It's probably the biggest pleasant surprise of the month, I would say, although there are a couple more coming up um, where I expected them not to be as good as they ended up being, but this was one that I'd never heard of before, so it was the biggest discovery of the month, certainly. And then uh, later on the 13th, probably after a sleep, I watched Rampage. Um, not really one of my Boxtober picks, it was just expiring on Prime. It was probably being picked up by Netflix the next week or something, but I didn't check. So yeah, so not an official Boxtober pick, but kind of a kaiju movie, so I feel like it kind of qualifies. There are a few um, films that I've logged this month that I won't be discussing as part of Boxtober because they're not uh, even vaguely horror films, but this I think counts. I really enjoyed Rampage, you know, I think it knows exactly what it is, and what it is is just a big dumb action movie. Um, you know, there are reasons I could have taken against it, but I just found it really enjoyable and quite visually impressive. I really enjoyed the kaiju, um, just the the character designs of the kaiju, and I find The Rock a really likeable presence at the centre of a film. Um, and there are a lot of fun kind of supporting tones as well, like Malin Ackerman, um, uh, Joe Manganiello. Mangina Yellow? Am I saying? Well, I didn't say it right the first time. I don't know if I said it right the second time. But um, anyway, that guy, you know who I'm talking about. Magic Mike XXL, right? That's him. Anyway. Uh, yeah, just a, a ton of really fun um, supporting performances. 
and oh and the guy from the walking dead that uh he has a baseball bat or something i don't know anyway that guy uh wait i want to say jeffrey dean morgan but uh i also want to say harry dean stanton i did this in my write-up it was a joke but now it's actually thrown me anyway the one of those that's in the walking dead and has the baseball bat and everything he's in it and he is having the time of his life um, oh, and it's Naomi Harris as well. She's clearly having a good time. It's so rare that I get to see Naomi Harris actually having a good time in a movie. Um, it feels like um, she quite often plays characters who are just deeply traumatised. So, uh, although actually her character does have some trauma, but um, but she's you know she's getting to run around and do action girl stuff. So that was kind of refreshing. I just think it's uh, I just think it's fun. You know, I it's it's not deep, but it's fun. Uh, the next night I watched An American Werewolf in London, um, which I quite enjoyed, but I felt that the ending was just very abrupt and kind of tonally jarring. I didn't really see in it what people seemed to see in it, but that might be because it was such an influence on things that came later, like Shaun of the Dead and other kind of horror pastiches. So it could be that it was ahead of its time, kind of, but now things that have built on it, because I saw them first, it, it kind of feels less original. But I do think Jenny Agatha is very good. So I, I enjoyed it with reservations, but uh, I didn't love it. And again, if you want more details, you can always go to my letterbox. The next day I watched Venom. Oh boy, that was a huge disappointment. I just found it really boring. I felt like it didn't really dig into any of the stuff that was interesting about it felt like a waste of Michelle Williams. I realised that I haven't actually seen seen Tom... Oh my god, I'm really uh, slurring my words. I swear I haven't. I haven't touched a drop. Uh, I think I'm just losing my mind. What was I saying? Um, yes, I haven't seen Tom Hardy in a huge amount of things. He's so ubiquitous that I kind of felt like I must have seen him in a million things. Actually, I really haven't. I've seen him in a handful, one of which is Mad Max Fury Road, which I love. So I had a lot of goodwill towards him from that. But yeah, I don't know. He's not doing all that much for me here. I think it's, I don't think he's doing anything wrong per se, at least not as the human guy whose name I forget. Um, but I just feel like his Venom, he seems to be doing, as far as I can tell, kind of the Bane voice again. It's just a bit weird and silly. I, yeah, it was just a disappointment. Um, I do think I might be up for watching a sequel because the world that it creates is kind of interesting, but I just felt like it was a little bit of a wasted opportunity, unfortunately. Uh, next time I watched Ginger Snaps, um, which I had seen before, or seen most of before, uh, when I was much younger. Um, I mean, Ginger Snaps obviously has a real reputation as this kind of cult feminist horror. It didn't really live up to that for me, and it didn't live up to my memory of it. I think it's interesting, but I also think that it's kind of message regarding femininity feels very ambivalent. Um, there's a lot of internalised misogyny from the two central characters, and I feel like that's never really confronted um, by the film, so I don't know, that was interesting. So that was an interesting one to go back to, to return to. So uh, I've been reading a lot of Barbara Creed and a, a little bit of Chris Deva. Uh Not that much, I find Chris Deva really hard to read. Um, but a, a ton of horror theory in general, just because I'm auditing this uh, class uh, as part of the MA that I'm hanging on to by a thread. 
Um, and it was really interesting in terms of Barbara Creed. Barbara Creed was writing, I want to say, in 92, although I might be thinking of Carol Clover, Men, Women and Chainsaws, I'm pretty sure it was 92. Um, so Creed might have been a little bit later, but, you know, certainly before Ginger Snaps was made, and it really feels like Ginger Snaps is very much playing into um, a lot of what Creed has to say, specifically in her chapter on vampires, um, female vampires. She doesn't really have a chapter on um, female shapeshifters, I think, because they're fairly rare, although this is the second example of a female shapeshifter narrative um, that I watched this month, last month, because uh, The White Reindeer is one of those as well. But I think it just wasn't quite such a trope as um, the female vampire was at the time that Creed was writing. But she does kind of touch on shapeshifter narratives in that chapter, and it really feels like Ginger Snaps is drawing on that. Uh, Alright, on the 17th, I watched Cape Fear. Um, Now, my uh, relationship with Scorsese... um, I find a lot of his films really macho. I don't think that he's very interested in women. Um, That kind of puts me off. Um, I also feel like, you know, when he first started, obviously, he was this kind of fresh voice of the new Hollywood. But I think that these days he's very much kind of um, a figure of the establishment. You know, I mean, that happens to everybody, I guess, as they get older. Um, So... Uh, yeah, so I have mixed feelings towards him. I really like After Hours. Um, I love Rolling Thunder Review, colon, a Bob Dylan story. Um, I love Bob Dylan, and, you know, I really enjoyed, uh, that kind of pseudo-documentary treatment of him. Um, I'm also a really big fan of Todd Haynes's I'm Not There. Uh, anyway, um, so yes, I have mixed feelings when it comes to Scorsese, but I was really pleasantly surprised by this film, Cape Fear. Um, my association with it was very much the Simpsons episode, Cape Fear with an E, where Sideshow Bob is, um, in the, uh, Robert De Niro role. Uh, he steps on a bunch of rakes, I'm sure you'll remember, um... So I kind of felt like I'd already seen it going in, but of course uh, there's a lot there that I had no idea about that you could not put in the Simpsons episode, apart from anything else. Uh, And I found it really fascinating. Um, I feel, and again, I kind of got into this um, in my write-up, if you'd like a more detailed um, kind of take on it, but I really felt that it was kind of using the Nick Nolte character almost as a Trojan horse, um to talk about um, the ways that women are often not protected um, by law, because essentially what the naughty character goes through is what a lot of women go through, is um, stalking, and, uh, you know, uh, sexual violence is a huge theme of the film, and the fact that he's not able to get adequate protections, and the fact that, you know the conflict between them stems from this rape case where the Nolte character uh, essentially hid evidence that could have, well, not exonerated the De Niro character, but um, might have got him off, which is that his victim was promiscuous. And, you know, I think the film doesn't dig into that in a huge amount of depth, but I think does enough to kind of indicate the problem that that piece of evidence even would have been relevant to the case. Um, 
So I actually think that it's a really interesting film about gender and gender politics. Oh, and I think Juliette Lewis is just incredible. Um, Absolutely, far and away, the best performance in the film. Um, I kind of think De Niro is uh, hamming it up a little bit, to be honest, which maybe is what the film needs, I don't know. But um, yeah, Um, Juliette Lewis, for me... Uh, blows him out the water absolutely incredible and kind of in some ways maybe not the protagonist but maybe the most important character in the film Um, and I think also this is a really interesting film to look at through the lens of that Carol Clover men women and chainsaws uh, kind of argument Um, so so that's Cape Fear Um, that was one of the big pleasant surprises that I was talking about And then uh, I had a run of a few days where for one reason and another I did not watch any horror films. Um, I watched some stuff uh, for the podcast, I watched some stuff that was expiring on Prime, Um, I watched some stuff for my course. Um, So it's not until the 25th, eight days later, that I watch another horror movie. And in fact, this was also for my course. This was Near Dark, Catherine Bigelow. Um, I didn't like it. Uh, Sorry. Um, I actually found it really regressive. Um, So there's an interesting debate around this film. Um, There's a guy called Christopher Sharrett who wrote an article. um, I'm really sorry, I don't remember the exact title of it. Um, And he's basically arguing that a lot of the horror movies of the 80s and 90s have this kind of neoliberal attitude. Um, And then a response was written to his analysis of Near Dark by uh, a guy called uh, Schneider. Um, It's called Suck, Don't Suck, um, based on his mishearing of the first line of dialogue in the film. Um, And he makes this argument that actually the film is more progressive than Sharrett allows um, because it's more ambivalent. And he goes all around the houses with this Oedipal argument. Here's the thing. I agree that there's a lot of Oedipal symbolism in the film. I just don't agree that that supports a progressive reading of the film. Um, But obviously, you know, um, different readings are available and there are other people uh, in my class who um, were a lot more sympathetic to the more kind of progressive reading of the film. Um, That wasn't my take on it and I also just think that Schneider's argument is full of holes uh, anyway, whether he's right or wrong, it's just not a very well structured argument. (sighs) But anyway, uh, yeah, Near Dark, I did not enjoy it, I did not like it, sorry. Anyway, a few days, Oh yeah, the next day, (laughs) the next day I watched uh, two versions of My Best Friend's Wedding um, because they were both expiring on Prime, one of which I enjoyed very much and had seen before, one of which, the 2016 Chinese remake, uh, not so much, but uh, you can read about that on my letterbox, there's nothing to do with Boxtober. Uh, 28th, I watched Hollow Man. Alright, I wasn't expecting anything from this movie, Um, I actually thought it might be a real chore. Um, I've spoke, well, I spoke in my Showgirls episode about my kind of relationship with Verhoeven and how I feel about his cinema, that usually I prefer the stuff he does with Esterhaz and not so much the, uh, sci-fi kind of thing. I think what works for me about Hollow Man, and I know, shocker, that I liked it because you're not supposed to like it, but then again, you know, for years you weren't supposed to like Showgirls and people are finally coming around on that. Anyway, um... 
I think the thing that works for me about Hollow Man is that in many ways it is an erotic thriller as well as being science fiction and as well as being a kind of slasher horror. It's kind of an amalgam of those elements. Um, And I just found it really uh, engaging. Um, I think the third act in particular is just really good kind of um, derivative genre fun that makes no bones about being derivative and is enjoyable. And I also think that Elizabeth Shue is doing really good work here. I think it's really interesting to see Kevin Bacon in a role like this because I usually associate him with quite likeable characters. I know he's played villains before or complex characters before, but I haven't really seen him in many of those roles. Um, So it was really interesting casting. I think he does a great job. I think he especially does a great job of emoting when for a lot of the film you can't see his face. You you can only see a kind of rubberized mask or nothing. so I, I I thought his performance was great. I really liked what Elizabeth Shue was doing. I loved what Josh Brolin was doing. Um, and yeah, I, again, I was really pleasantly surprised. I went in expecting very little from the film and actually, um, yeah, really worked for me. What can I say? Um, and again, if you want a little bit more detail and a little bit more analysis, that's all on Letterboxd. Um, so, so yeah, I just seem to be a real contrarian when it comes to Verhoeven, but I'm, I don't know, it's not, you know, um, it's not, like, an angle, I'm not, <laughs> I don't have an agenda, I just, that's, that's how I felt about it. And then the, uh, next night I watched Midnight Special, I think I talked about potentially putting this on my list, but not being sure whether it was kind of enough of a horror, but I was thinking about it. Anyway, in the end, it was expiring on Prime that night anyway, so I thought might as well go ahead and watch it. Um, I have enjoyed Jeff Nichols' stuff in the past. Um, I liked Take Shelter. I liked Mud. Um, This I quite enjoyed, um, but I felt like it was... It took itself a little bit too seriously and was a little bit too derivative. I felt there were very much echoes of Starman and of E.T., both of which, of course, are kind of also echoes of, um, you know, Jesus um, and maybe Stranger in a Strange Land um, and uh, kind of Golden Age sci-fi like that. Was that Golden Age? I don't know. Anyway, so, you know, I mean... There's nothing new under the sun, everything's derivative to a certain extent, but I did feel that this was a film that felt like it was much more inventive than it actually was. It was recycling a lot of ideas, you know, in a very technically competent way, uh, and with lots of very good performances, but I just felt like there wasn't quite enough substance there to justify um, the tone, I suppose. Um, but it was beautiful to look at, you know, um, and I think it maintains suspense really well. So, you know, um, certainly not a thumbs down, but just not a thumbs all the way up either for Midnight Special. Um, on the 30th, I watched The Addams Family, but not the 1991 version. I watched the 2019 animated version and I did not like it, um... I did 
like what Chloe Grace Moretz was doing and I liked what Elsie Fisher was doing and what Alison Janney was doing. I didn't like the character design. I thought the film was so ugly on the whole. There were moments of visual invention, but not enough. I know that the character design is close to the original Charles Adams cartoons, um, but I don't know, there's just something about them that I found really off-putting. The script wasn't good enough, it wasn't very funny, um, and there were these weird, tonally jarring jokes about, like, the thing having a foot fetish, and, uh, Nick Kroll is Fester, and he's making a joke about boner pills, uh, I don't know, it's just weird, um, I quite liked the subplot with Wednesday and her new friend Parker Needles, um, but other than that, I just, it felt like it was really messy, it didn't have enough going on, I, I didn't like, I mean, God, it breaks my heart to criticise an Oscar Isaac performance. I love Oscar Isaac, but I do not know what he was doing in this film. It was bizarre. It kind of felt like... So, um, Gomez Adams, uh, traditionally, is Castilian. And, um, obviously Raul Julia, I believe I'm right in saying. Would it be Julia? Um, anyway. Um, it's Hispanic. Oscar Isaac's Hispanic. So, uh, I kind of feel like that casting is about kind of reinforcing that part of his backstory which was established in the tv show but then they keep talking about the old country and it feels like the old country is supposed to be this kind of generic central or eastern european unspecified state they're talking about this dance from poland um the mazurka is a real Polish folk dance and they've kind of appropriated it and turned it into this like bar mitzvah-esque thing that has a sabre competition attached. Uh, it just, it felt really weird and it felt like they were trying to make a point about immigration and tolerance and stuff, but they d didn't quite know what they wanted to say and... The target of the satire feels really kind of diffuse and unclear. Um, I just thought it was a big mess. I didn't enjoy it at all. I'm sorry. And then on the 31st, finally for Halloween, I watched The Addams Family, 1991, Barry Sonnenfeld. I was intending to watch both of the films back to back. I did not get around to doing that. I just watched the first one, which I think is pretty much universally considered the worst of the two. Um, I still really enjoyed it. I mean, I've seen it before, but not for many years, and I think I've seen the sequel either more frequently or more recently, or both. Um, I remember it much better. So it was interesting to revisit that first one. I think the performances are spot on, pretty much across the board. Elizabeth Wilson, uh, probably one of the least mentioned cast members, who is really very, very, f I mean, I think the big laugh out loud moments for me watching the movie were her as Dr. Pinderschloss, and yeah, I mean, I just found it really enjoyable, you know, I, I think the production design is spot on. I do think, yes, the script could maybe be a little bit sharper, and it does kind of feel like a collection of bits rather than a very coherent story, but I just think that it's so beautiful to look at and the performances are so good and it creates such um, an atmosphere that I don't really mind um, those elements of it. I just like being in that world. 
Uh, and also, of course, I just watched the animated version, which I disliked. So I guess maybe in comparison, um, it just seemed so much better. So that is my Boxtober. How many is that? Uh, three, four, three, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. Thirteen. What a number! The spooky number. Uh, wow, it's almost like I planned it, as if I ever plan anything, even the sentence that is coming out of my mouth right as we speak. Huh. Anyway, um, so yes, there we go, that's Boxtober. Okay, moving on. Uh, wow, this uh, episode already longer than I intended it to be, I'm sorry. Once I get on a roll, I find it difficult to stop. I will really, really try to blaze through this next part. So, for November, I am challenging myself to do no American culture November, which is a challenge that I made up for myself. Um, and just to kind of briefly uh, try to rationalise why I'm doing this. I have gone into this in a lot more detail on a public Patreon post, which I will link. Um, I don't usually promote my Patreon because I usually just put my uh, poems that I write in April. There's NaPoRimo. You try and write a poem every day. I mostly put those on Patreon. Um, you know, it's not that I think they're bad, um, they are what they are. Uh, some of them I think are good, some of them I think are bad, that's the nature of the beast, but I just don't think it's really very uh, relevant to this podcast, so I don't promote it very often. Uh, but that is where I have put the post where I'm kind of explaining why I'm doing this. But just to briefly try to explain, um, it's not an anti-American thing, um, I think just under half of my listenership is in uh, the US. Um, hi, um, thank you for listening. Um, I truly appreciate every single one of you. There aren't that many of you. So um, I, it's really not intended as a, a statement of anti-Americanism. As you can probably tell, I love US culture. Pretty much every film that I've talked about on the podcast so far has been a US film. That's partly because I've been doing a lot of retrospectives and when I was kind of looking at films that had an anniversary coming up, those were the ones that I felt like I had something to say about, but clearly I'm a big fan of US films and US culture in general. However, I do feel like I spend a lot of time in online spaces that are dominated by Americans. Um, and that's partly my own fault, you know, um, I've put together a Twitter timeline, I've followed a lot of Americans. Um, I choose what websites I go to. Um, on the other hand, you know, a lot of these websites are American websites and they're the ones that have more people on them. And so, you know, I think there's a certain level of personal responsibility. Part of it is also circumstances. Um, but I just felt that, um, I was being inundated with American voices, American opinions, American takes, American lenses on the world. Um, and the other thing is that basically, um, I've talked about how I pretty much only watch movies that are expiring on Prime. I'm incredibly deadline oriented and essentially what's happened is that ever since Mubi stopped doing their kind of 30 day 
rolling thing where a film would be on their service for 30 days and then would expire since they moved over to a library where most of those films remain and especially since um they rolled out the library on the smart tv app i haven't been motivated to watch um things on movie so much anymore and i've been much more motivated to watch things that were expiring on prime and the prime library tends very much towards us films so in the last couple of months or however long it's been since uh, Mubi made this change I have been watching way more American films than usual and that in combination with the kind of online experience that I was having made me feel like I needed to do something to redress that balance. So that's my attempt at a somewhat brief explanation of this. I hope that nobody will take it as a statement of um, intolerance towards uh, American people or culture or values. It's simply that I felt like I needed um, a little bit of a break and to diversify uh, what I was watching a little bit. So again, I've gone into more detail about this on Patreon. Um, and I will link to that post just in case you do want to kind of know a little bit more about my rationale and uh, all of that stuff. But just in terms of what this is going to mean for films, pretty much anything from the um, continental US that's in the English language. And then also things... Ugh, so I'm kind of going back and forth on this, I'm on the fence, but I would say anything that is from Canada that is in English, and the same goes for Hawaii, um, uh, Puerto Rico, and American Samoa. Um, if they're in English, then I will avoid them. If they are in Hawaiian or Samoan or uh, French Canadian or uh, Spanish, then it's a different matter. Um, I don't think there's anything that's on my list um, that is in any of those languages or from any of those locations anyway. Sorry, the, the stuff that's in Spanish, um, but uh, there's nothing, f and French, but there's nothing from those locations. So um, in theory, it shouldn't really matter. Um, but just to kind of set some boundaries for myself and help me to decide how to do this, that's kind of the side that I came down on. And what makes a film American, I decided, is uh, if it's set in the continental US or if it's set in Canada, Puerto Rico, American Samoa or Hawaii and is in English, that would be one thing. Or, and or, if it has an American director or screenwriter who is working in English. Um, so that means that I could watch Joseph Losey's Monsieur Klein, which is a French film but with an American director, because he's not working the English language, um, I feel like that's enough of a remove. Whereas his films that he made in the UK, in English, I feel like that's still um, borderline. An American protagonist or star, unless uh, they're part of an ensemble and are outnumbered by non-Americans. Um, so that means something like Danny Boyle's Sunshine would probably be okay. Um, Snowpiercer, I'm not sure about. Um, Snowpiercer is a film I've been meaning to watch for ages and have never got around to. I don't know how prominent Chris Evans is in the film or whether it is more of a true ensemble, so it's difficult for me to know where to come down on that one. Uh, but there are so many other films that I have that I can watch that I'll probably just leave that for another time. 
And then uh, the financing, uh, which is even more of a minefield than the rest of this stuff, but um, essentially if 50% or more of the funding seems to be American, um, then that would disqualify the film. So, for example, the example I've used in my post is The Admirable Crichton um, from 1957, I want to say. It's set in England and in a kind of you know, um, unspecified island in the Pacific. So it's not set in the US. Um, the star is English. Um, it's based on source material from a Scottish guy. But because the financing um, is uh, at least 50% American, um, it is disqualified. Um, and that might seem harsh, but, you know, money talks, right? Um, the The influence is there. Um, so I feel like just to be safe, I guess, um, that's the way that I'm going to do it. And I have various other rules for other media, but I'll focus on films here. And again, I will link to that, um, in the description if you just want a little bit more, um, detail on why and how I'm kind of doing this challenge. Um, it's an unlocked post, so you don't have to support me on Patreon. <laughs> and um, yeah, uh, I'm not even necessarily encouraging you to do that because it's basically just where I put my poems and I feel mildly embarrassed about that. Um, anyway, uh, so <laughs> I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I will just briefly go through my list that I've drawn up of films that I may or may not be watching this month. Um, I'm not challenging myself to watch all these films, these are just suggestions. So one of them is Rocks, which uh, came out recently um, and is a kind of coming of age uh, story set in London. Um, Uncle Boon Me, um, you probably know more about it than I do. Uh, From Caligari to Hitler, German cinema in the age of the masses, which I just thought might be interesting. Uh, Wake in Frights is one that I have been meaning to watch forever. Uh, Tokyo Story, obviously a classic. Fantastic Planet, Ditto. I don't know what order these are in. They might just be in the order that I added them to the list. They don't seem to be in any particular uh, order. Anyway, Free Fire is... It does have um, an American star, but I feel like it's an ensemble, and she's outnumbered, and I feel it sounds kind of bad, right? Outnumbered, but you know what I mean um and uh yeah so I, I feel like free fire should qualify i think uh somersault um gorgeous australian film that i saw when it came out and i have been wanting to watch again for ages um hunt for the wilder people uh oh man i know i should have seen this years ago it's another one that i just have been meaning to get around to um boy also toki waititi I've got Sahib Bibi Agulam. Uh, uh, I'm really sorry if I'm mispronouncing any of these. Uh, Churi Churi. Uh, Shri420. Um, I think that these... Um, these are all films. Let me just check to see if I'm right in saying this. Oh, maybe Sahib Bibi Agulam does not. But I think... Uh, Shri420 and Churi Churi are both uh, films which have, yes, uh, Raj Kapoor and Nargis. Uh, and I really like Avara, so um, that is why I've put those on there. 
uh, Juliet of the Spirits, a little bit of Fellini, uh, quite a lot of Fellini on this list actually, um, who is a bit of a blind spot for me until recently. The Long Day Closes, How to Build a Girl, I've heard terrible things about, but you know, I just thought I'd put it on this list anyway, it happens to be on my streaming services, it's one I haven't seen yet, um, and me dad's from Wolverhampton, so, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, Fox and his friends. Oh, I'm actually quite looking forward to that one. I think that might be great. Uh, Black Book, a um, little bit more Verhoeven. An Education is another film that I have already seen, but have been meaning to revisit for quite a while. Got Ujimbo, Rashomon, Still Walking, Aniara. Oh, yeah, that's one that I really want to watch. Um, it's on BFI Player, which I recently got like a deal where it was 99p a month for three months. Um, so a lot of this stuff is from BFI Player, uh, and I'm excited to dig into some of their catalogue. Uh, I've got Umberto D, La Dolce Vita, Eight and a Half. It's a Wonderful Afterlife, um, which I want to say is Gorinda Charter. Am I right in saying that? Uh, yeah, Gorinda Charter. Uh, I enjoy Grinder Charter's films, um, with reservations, but, um, you know, I do think she, there's a, often a very kind of charming tone to them. Blinded by the Light really worked for me, I can completely understand how it wouldn't, um, for any number of reasons, but I just kind of let myself go with it, and it won me over. Um... A lot of her other films I maybe have slightly more reservations about, but, you know, I just, I do, mm, I, there's just something about her that I quite enjoy. I don't know very much about It's Wonderful Afterlife, but it might be fun. And then finally I've got Dating Amber, which came out earlier this year. It's um, a queer Irish film, uh, which uh, might well be up my street. So that's just a kind of um, list of suggestions. Who knows how many of those I will end up watching. Um... Honestly, my attention span isn't the best right now. Um, I mean, it's never the best, um, but I feel like it's worse than usual. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. Um, so, you know, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how it goes. I might end up watching more TV. And speaking of TV, I want to introduce a new segment. Segment sounds kind of formal for what this is, um, but uh, a new thing where I talk about something... Uh, I want to talk a little bit about TV. Um, I usually don't um, talk very much about TV on here, but, you know, like, it's my podcast. I can talk about what I want. So I did want to mention one of the things that I am slightly upset about um, is that I didn't manage to finish watching Counterpart um, before November started. I started watching Counterpart. Stars Play was another of these prime channels that I got on this deal, and I know Prime is bad, it's just that I'm broke and it was a really good deal. You know, what can you do? Uh, we're all living a compromised life. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, Counterpart is something that I had been wanting to watch for quite a long time. Um, and then when I finally got the Stars Play channel, uh, I decided to pick it up. And I gotta tell you, this show has really got my number. Um, particularly in that first episode, you're introduced to this idea of, like, playing Go. I've been wanting to play Go. I still haven't learnt, because, God forbid, I actually learn anything or do anything, but I've been wanting to learn how to play Go, um, pretty much ever since I, um, saw The Hedgehog. Um, and, um, the, the characters play Go in that film, 
and talk about how um, Go is kind of more inherently cooperative than chess, because in chess you can only win by destroying your opponent, but in Go you win by um, being more constructive. And I just thought that was so fascinating. Um, the show is set in Germany. Um, I lived in Germany for a year. Um, it's set in Berlin, actually. Uh, I've only been to Berlin once, and uh, I didn't have a great time, I think just because the guide that I had uh, was not great and probably didn't take us to the best places. I think also um, I was probably a little bit young, um, so I'd like to go back to Berlin, but I lived in Germany for a year in uh, Munich, uh, which is quite far from Berlin. Um, but I travelled a little bit around Germany. I would say um, Saxony is probably my favourite um, area of Germany. I love Dresden. It's um, absolutely stunning, um, despite having been, uh, you know, completely wiped out um, during the Second World War. Um, it um, It's just the most beautiful city probably that I've ever been to. I've been there twice now. Um, there's this amazing park in Saxony called Saxon, Switzerland. Um, uh, it's just stunning. Um, so I lived in Bavaria, uh, which is down south, and it's also very beautiful, you know, kind of, um, like fairy tale castles and chocolate box villages and snow at Christmas and all of that stuff. It's very pretty. And there are things about Bavaria that I really like, but I just have to say the couple of times that I well, went to Saxony and, and Dresden, it was really beautiful. I'm getting off track, aren't I? Um, but the point is that the show is set in Germany, which, you know, works for me, clearly. Um, a lot of the dialogue is in German. My German's pretty rusty, but I still like to hit stuff that's in German so I can figure out how much I understand and try to, you know, kind of improve a little bit. Um, weirdly, um... A lot of it isn't translated uh, in my version, and I can't tell whether that's deliberate or just an oversight, because some of the episodes don't have any uh, captions whatsoever um, for the English either, So, uh, which I prefer to have on. Anyway, so this first episode, um, you've got the go, you've got the German stuff, you've also got basically a premise that uh, feels very close to Fringe, which was one of my absolute um, favourite shows of all time is one of my absolute favourite shows of all time. Um, also maybe Shades of Battlestar Galactica, Shades of uh, Orphan Black, um, all shows that I really love, uh, BSG in particular is, again, one of my faves. Um, so really kind of evoking all of this stuff um, that really works for me. And then the first episode closes with James Carr's Dark End of the Street. Uh, and I'm a really big fan of James Carr. Um, Elvis Costello has done versions um, of uh, at least one of his songs, if not more. Um, and, you know, my dad introduced me to James Carr originally, so it has that kind of sentimental value. Uh, so just in general, um, you know, this first episode of Counterpart was just really ticking all these boxes for me. Um, and I continued to really enjoy the first season. Um, I got about halfway through the second season before I decided to start this challenge. The second season, I felt there was slight dip in quality. Um, I think um, the writing got a bit less subtle. Um, it kind of felt like they no longer trusted the audience to figure things out for themselves. It was all a little bit more um, signalled and... They kind of got away from the central character a little bit, which in some ways I think is a good choice, you know, make it more of an ensemble, widen it out. 
but I just felt like they hadn't necessarily given us much reason to care about some of these characters that they were broadening out to, and they were also abandoning a side character from the first uh, season called Baldwin, um, who uh, was probably one of the highlights of the first season for me. Feels like she's in it so much less. And I also just felt like some of the supporting performances were quite weak or have been quite weak so far in the second season, um, which is a real shame. And I don't know whether that has to do with direction or casting or uh, why that would be the case. But I just felt like there were a couple of two or three supporting actors in season two that I just felt were just not giving great performances. Um, It's very odd. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I feel like it's fallen off somewhat for me in season two, but I would have liked to have finished it, um, before I start this challenge. I'm gonna have to pick it back up, uh, in December. Uh, but that's something to look forward to anyway, because even though, you know, maybe I have some issues with the second season, it's still a really interesting show, um, that, uh, you know, has a lot of really interesting kind of Cold War themes, great production design, really good central performance from J.K. Simmons, actually a pair of central performances, um, and a lot of the um, kind of surrounding ensemble is great too. Actually, uh, one really interesting supporting character is played by, let me see if I can try and get this right, Nazanin Boniardi. Now, she was in How I Met Your Mother as Nora, who was a love interest for Barney, and I hated her in that show. Not necessarily her performance, I didn't like the character, but I think her performance didn't help, and I wonder if part of that, I quite often don't like English characters on sitcoms, and I think that's because they're often being asked to really exaggerate their accents and it ends up sounding very um, unnatural to me so Daphne and Frasier would be one example of that I think Emily in um, Friends is another example and it just seems very odd to my ears what they're doing I mean I think in Frasier it's kind of a joke right because her accent is just (laughs) just bizarre anyway uh, although I don't know how apparent that would be to an American audience Um, but anyway, so I didn't like her in How I Met Your Mother at all. Um, and this she's great, and I think part of that is that it's a very international cast, so she's not this kind of token non-American where the joke is that she doesn't have an American accent. And, look, I don't mean to be, um, again, I don't mean to be anti-American, but, um, it does feel like that is the joke about the one character who doesn't have an American accent in a lot of American sitcoms. That's, like, funny. I mean, I'm sure that that's true of British sitcoms as well. Um, So that helps, I'm sure, that she's not having to do this kind of exaggerated, funny voice version of her accent. And I think also the fact that um, a lot of the elements of the character that she's playing really weirdly resonate with her own experiences um so she was actually raised as a Scientologist and at one point she was groomed to be Tom Cruise's new girlfriend um she since uh left the organization but I think that what she's playing uh in the show just 
is a really interesting kind of echo of that experience. And it looks like she's the um, main character in the new Lord of the Rings show. So I think that that will be fascinating. Um, I'm really hoping that that will be good. Um, I'm looking forward to it. And it's really cool um, to know that she's going to be in it and presumably in a pretty major part uh, on Wikipedia, I think it says that she's the main character. I don't know if that's definitely confirmed, but it seems like she's certainly going to be like a prominent part of the ensemble, at least. Um, that's really cool to know. Also, the fact that she's um, half Iranian and um, other adaptations of Tolkien haven't exactly been great uh, in terms of casting anyone who isn't white. Um, so that's kind of cool and refreshing. Um, so I'll be excited to see how that turns out. Oh man, this has been a really long and rambling episode so far, and I do apologise for that. Uh, but I do very briefly want to touch on another TV show. This is my TV talk segment. Let's talk TV. Um, so a, another thing that I watched on Stars Play once I got this uh, channel uh, was the Four Weddings and a Funeral uh, TV show, which I believe Mindy Kaling was the showrunner or like an executive producer on that show. And it stars Natalie Emmanuel. Um, it's a good cast, I think. Um, it's a nice ensemble. Um, I watched the first episode and I found it really annoying. And again, I think it was this kind of American take on British people and our accents and our culture that felt um, maybe not terribly authentic um, and a bit silly. Uh, and then it kind of started to grow on me a little bit. Um, and then I got bored after the third episode and I stopped watching. Um, but if anybody did watch the whole thing and thinks that I should go back to it and keep trying... Let me know. Um, I I love a rom-com. Um, I, this felt like it just wasn't doing it for me. Um, but, uh, you know, if it pays off in the end, if it's worth it, uh, let me know. I'll maybe pick it back up. Obviously in December, um, because it's American, so I can't watch it right now. Yeah, and also if you have any recommendations for non-American TV shows and films, obviously I've mentioned quite a few films that are on my list. Um, I may also revisit some of the non-American films that I didn't get to from Boxtober, depending on how things go and how I'm feeling. Um, but yeah, if you have any thoughts about that, um, you can always find me at uh, Panicky Pictures on Twitter and Panicky in the UK on Letterboxd. Links will be in the description. Um, oh yeah, just to say on the subject of uh, Twitter and uh, apps and stuff like that, um, I was thinking about websites and apps and whether I should still be going to American ones. Um, we're about to re-enter lockdown in the UK. I live alone, um, miles and miles from my family and most of my established social network. I moved up here. Uh, just over a year ago. Um, I did make some friends when I moved up, but, um, you know, I think those newer friendships kind of have a tendency to dwindle more easily than more established ones, and with the lockdown and everything, that's kind of ended up happening. Um, so I'm a little bit isolated up here socially, um, and so I think... For me, if I were to completely remove myself from social media entirely, I think that would be quite tough. 
So I haven't done that. What I have done is I have deactivated my main Twitter account, um, but I've left up my side Twitter accounts, including Panicky Pictures, where you can always follow me on Twitter. As it turns out, um, Letterboxd is a New Zealand um, website, uh, which I, th- I think I did, it was deep in the recesses of my brain, I did know that, but I reminded myself of it the other day when I was looking this stuff up. Um, Anchor, uh, was founded by Americans, Anchor's the podcast app that I'm using, uh, to publish this. Um, it was founded by Americans, but it's actually owned by Spotify, which is a Swedish company, uh, which, again, probably, I, on some level I already knew, but I had forgotten. Um, Mubi, I think, is Turkish, uh, which was complete news to me, that's really interesting, and I'm, I think I'll be probably watching quite a few things on movie this month. Um, BFI Player, obviously, uh, is English, British, rather, but um, I will be accessing it through Amazon Prime because that's the only way I have access to it. So it's not perfect, but um, my kind of use of these apps and websites is a little bit more international than I actually had realised. So that's kind of cool to know. Uh, Oh, boy. (laughs) I did say my attention span wasn't great right now. Um, This may be uh, my least focused episode yet. Might not be, but it might be. So I'm going to leave it there. Um, (laughs) My god, if you made it this far uh, without quitting, I applaud you. Thank you so much. Uh, Do come and say hello on Twitter or Letterboxd or whatever. Um, if you have an Anchor account, you can actually leave a voicemail on Anchor. Um, again, the link should be in the description. Uh, so, you know, if you wanted to do that, you could do. Um, could shout at me for not watching American films or whatever. Um, so, <laughs> I hope that I haven't completely alienated my American listenership, and I hope that you can understand um, my reasons behind doing this and um, don't feel personally slighted by them. Uh, uh, anyway, thank you so much for listening, uh, and I hope that you have a great November, oh god, and I hope that, you know, I hope things go well this week, all crossing our fingers for Tuesday, um, (laughs) alright, uh, cheerio.